You know, your heart, your heart is uh, pretty close to being in the center of your, your chest, correct? And, and, and it really, it's, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, it with your brain is the center of your life, isn't it? I mean, because as your heart goes, you go. And, and with, without a heart, um, although I've dated some girls in the past who I don't believe really had hearts. Um, a little romantic humor there. But your heart affects everything. It, it's the, the center of your, your being. And when you hear the phrase, to get to the heart of the matter, you, most of you are gray enough or bald enough. You, you know what that means. That means that you want to get to the, uh, you want to get to the source. You want to get to the meat and the potatoes. You want to get to the root of it. We're in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 22 through 36. And this is the, really, it's probably the first sermon, at least the first sermon we have recorded Post-resurrection, Peter is preaching. We began it last week, just good stuff. And this is kind of the body of this sermon. This is the body. This is the meat and potatoes of the sermon. And, and boy, I want to tell you, this is the heart of, of Christianity in, in a thousand ways. Here's the main thought this evening that we're going to prove from the Scriptures. Jesus is the Christ and the Lord. Can you say amen to that? Now, you can, listen, you feel free to say amen anytime except at the wrong time. I mean, wherever the wrong time might be. But, I mean, you know, if I say they're going to go to hell without Jesus, don't scream amen. You know, if they say they're going to go to heaven with Jesus, scream amen. That makes sense. I need to coach y'all up a little bit. Verse 36, verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, for certain, did you get that? God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Okay, speaking to, uh, you know, almost certainly a predominantly Jewish audience, the day of Pentecost, and we looked at that as a Sunday, and there's, boy, there's people from all over the world that are still Jewish people there, and so they've gathered, and they heard all this noise from uh, the, the people speaking in tongues, and a lot of these are devout Jewish people, and he's saying this Jesus is Christ and Lord. Now, this mean, to them, this would have been stunning to hear this. It ought to stun us a little bit. What does the word Christ mean? Christ is, a, is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means the anointed one. And, and the Jewish people were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for the anointed one. They were looking for the Christ. Christ, Messiah, is the Savior. And he's declaring to them, Jesus Christ is the Savior. And then he says he's not just Savior, he is Lord. The word Lord means master. It means owner. Now, I've said that, I've told you this a lot, but I guarantee you, you've slept since then, so I'm going to tell you again. The significance of this to these people was gigantic. Remember, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in what? Greek. Pig Latin or Greek? Greek. It was written in Greek. Hebrew Greeks. In Jesus' day, they had translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, and they called it the Septuagint. Uh, Jesus probably grew up reading the Septuagint. If you have your Septuagints today, turn to page 52, and we will discuss this or that. So it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And so in the, the, the Hebrew, Old, the Greek Old Testament, this word Lord, kuros is the Greek word. It was referred to God the Father. God the Father is Lord. God the Father is kuros. God the Father, God the Father. And now they're saying that Jesus Christ is kuros. Jesus is God. Do you get the significance of that? 
That's blasphemy, unless it's true, right? I mean, if I say Josh is God, that's blasphemy, isn't it? And you and I are both going to step away from each other because one of us is going to get struck, right, Josh? To say Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he is God. Now, folks, that's bold claims, amen? I mean, that's bold claims. But see, we're going to back up and see that Peter, through the Holy Spirit, proves that Jesus is the Messiah and he is Lord. Let me give you these facts here. First of all, his life fruits, his life evidences proved this. Look in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you you yourselves know. Brian, uh, back that up. Let's leave it there for just a second. We're going to walk through this. A man attested to you by God. The word attested there is, is an important word. It means to appoint someone to a public office back then. It means to accredit something. Now, we live in a university town, and I know, Reggie Hanchy, you had to deal with accredit, school accreditations. The SACs, the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools, they would uh, come into tech, they would come into grambling, and they would have all these things that you would have to, criteria you have to meet to stay accredited, to have their affirmation and their stamp of approval. Here's what the, what the Bible's saying here is that Jesus has got the stamp and the approval, the accreditation of God the Father. That's pretty good stuff right there, isn't it? But it doesn't just end there. He says, it was seen, and he uses three different words for miracles here. He says, seen you by God with mighty works. That, that's a word that means miracles. It's a, a Greek word where we get our English word dynamite from. It means inherent power. It's three different words, descriptive words to describe the same thing, a miracle. It's a mighty work. It's an it's a in, inherent Tremendous power. And then he uses the word wonders. What is a wonder? A wonder, something happens and you are startled by it. You're just amazed by it. I'm not getting into it, but one way or the other, you were amazed last night if you watched the elections. It startled you. It was a wonder, wasn't it? It may have been a sign. Who knows? And the next word here is the word signs. The signs is another word for miracle. In fact, in the Gospel of John, when John talks about miracles, he often uses the word sign. What was a sign? A sign was a miracle, with, and all miracles are this way to an extent, but a sign meant it was a miracle with an, an ethical end in view. In other words, it was to try to get you to go, wow, unbelievable that that happened. That had to be God, and to get us to, to change our life or to change our patterns. What he's talking about, Jesus Christ is accredited by his miracles, his mighty works, his wonders, and his signs. Now, here's some good definitions of a miracle. It's an extraordinary event. It's an intervention in human affairs. I love this one. A miracle is a transgression of the laws of nature. Folks, when you can walk on water, you are transgressing nature. When you can take five Big Macs and feed a football team, you are transgressing the law of nature. Amen? That's so true. I love what the great English writer C.S. Lewis said. He said, when a woman can have a baby and she's not had sex and she's not lying, that is a mighty work 
that's a wonder, and that's a sign. Would you agree with that? And that's what the virgin birth of Jesus Christ was. This is, these are some interesting stats. They came out from Newsweek several years ago. Uh, 84% of Americans believe in divine miracles. That's pretty good. Uh, you, you almost have to believe in that to have hope at times, don't you? But I thought this was interesting. 79% believe the ones in the Bible. In other words, 6%. Uh, the 5% of the people who believe in miracles just don't believe the ones in the Bible. Isn't that kind of funny? But, but I love how this is ended here in this verse. Talking about these miracles God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Folks, the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. They, it was written by people who could testify that's not true or this is true. That's what he's affirming to them. Jesus did these miracles. That ought to wake you up. He is the Savior. He is God. Nobody can do these things unless they've got God's stamp on them. And his miracles prove that he is the Christ and the Lord. That's good, isn't it? See, trying to get you and me to focus on this too, not just Jewish people 2,000 years ago. Here's the second thing. If you don't believe that, he died and arose from the grave. That's a pretty good trick, isn't it? Look in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We'll talk about that you crucified in just a moment. That, Brian, that, leave that there just a second. You see definite plan there. That, that's the concept of predestination. What, what does that mean when it says the definite plan? That's not a predestined of an individual to salvation or an individual to hell. That's a definite plan or a predestination about the plan of salvation. Does that make sense? That, that's, an, that's an important thing. The word predestined literally means to draw out the boundaries beforehand, okay? He uses the word foreknowledge. That means to know ahead of time. Now, folks, this is, this is deep stuff. God knew that mankind was going to blow it. And God, in his foreknowledge and his love for you and me, he predetermined that he was going to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins before there was ever a man. Isn't that neat? That God knew those things and God drew out the boundaries or the plan of salvation but before the beginning of the world. What, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. Again, does that mean that... that that man, God knew we were going to sin? Absolutely. Does that mean God caused us to sin? Absolutely not. In fact, uh, Judas is held very accountable in chapter 1 for what he did. And what's being said over and over and over in this chapter is that we sinned, we crucified him. You ever thought about that, folks? That, 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 that Jesus is coming and dying? That wasn't an accident. That wasn't an uh, uh, afterthought. How many of you remember Dale Earnhardt, race car driver? He died in February of 2001. It was a really tragic thing. It was the last lap of the race, and he got bumped from behind and hit into a wall and looked like, just didn't look like a bad wreck compared to what you see in those kind of races, but he died. And, and they, they determined one of the things that, that may have been the reason is he wasn't wearing his head and neck safety device, which apparently a lot of the drivers at that time did not wear. I would be in a rubber uniform if I was inside one of those cars going 500 miles an hour, whatever they go. 
But they determined, and you know, they can't be exact with this, but they determined that was a preventable death. Isn't that sad? I mean, that's always sad. You know what? Jesus Christ's death wasn't preventable, was it? wasn't preventable. It was going to happen. It had to happen. Jesus Christ came to die. Look again in verse 23. Who you crucified. Did you see that? You crucified. Jewish people, you crucified. By the way, you and I crucified him too. The word crucify means what you think. It means to kill on a cross. It also means to fasten. Uh, and, And probably what they did when they nailed Jesus to the cross and other people who were sentenced to this, they, they may have to make sure that the flesh didn't rip off. Yeah, that's terrible, but true. They would fasten them to it too to kind of double ensure that they were stuck to the cross. He uses the word kill after this. Uh, very interesting. You crucified and killed. He was crucified and killed. The word kill there means to kill violently. It also means to murder. And Jesus Christ was murdered. Wasn't predetermined that we fall in sin, but it was predetermined that when we sin, that God was sending Jesus to die for our sin. But it doesn't end there because you can say if Jesus, Jesus died, but how does this prove he's Lord if he stayed dead? Well, he didn't stay dead. Look in verse 24. God raised him up. Loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Raised up means to stand up. Folks, in the New Testament, anytime you see the word resurrection, when referring to Jesus Christ, it's talking to a physical bodily resurrection. It's not a spiritual resurrection. It's not a ghost. It's not a good feeling. It's not an illusion. It's someone standing up and walking out. Jesus got up and walked out of the tomb. Isn't that great? And it says he loosened the pain of death. This is literally the picture of somebody or something being tied up, being bound up, and then someone coming and cutting those cords and letting them loose. Listen, Jesus died, but death couldn't keep him in the grave. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the power of Jesus Christ popped those, those, uh, those, the, the boundaries of death off of him, and he got up and walked out of the grave. I don't know about you, that's pretty good stuff. Look in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's Peter's not saying, listen, I want you to hope this happened. I want you just to take my word because I heard it from someone else. Peter said, no, we saw Jesus die, and we saw him walk out of the tomb. We touched him. He ate fish with us. I'm sure it was fried. That's the better fish. But he ate fish with us. We know he came back alive. How can we be assured Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ and Lord? Folks, you don't die on a cross and walk out of a tomb three days later if you're not something spectacular. He's Christ and he's Lord. Here's the third thing that's neat. The Old Testament prophecy verifies it. We're going to look at some verses in a minute which are, are found in Psalms 16, verse 8 through 11 if you're taking notes. These are prophetic words is what we're told. Look in verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life and you will make 
me full of gladness with your presence. Now, we're going to look at more of that in just a second, but I'm going to stop. You see the word Hades? It's used twice in, in these next passages here in another place. The word Hades there does not mean hell. Hades literally is the place of the dead. The, the Greek word for hell is Gehenna. Hades is place of the dead. Now, you grew up here in Hades or, you know, you, if you were a, a good Christian, you'd never tell someone to go to H-E double toothpicks. You might say, go to Hades, which really wasn't any better, was it? But Hades literally means the place of the dead. And there was a, a part of Hades for the unrighteous dead. We would say that was Gehenna and hell and a place of Hades for the righteous dead, paradise. Very important you understand that. Makes sense? Doesn't look like it, but I hope it does. Let's move forward. Verse 29. Verse 29 through 31. Brothers, I I may say to you with confidence about this, the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... Moses and David are called prophets. Someone who proclaimed the word of God was a prophet. David's prophesying, future predicting here too. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised him up. Wow, what a a tremendous thing here. Now here's something interesting. Peter's saying the psalm is a, is a future prediction of Jesus Christ. Here's one of the ways he says it. He goes, David's over here buried. David's tomb over here you can go see. In 1911, an archaeologist discovered in the old city of Jerusalem near the, what we'd say with the temple area, nine ancient graves that dated back about 3,000 years. One of those was very large, and he said they thought that was the tomb of King David. Now, when Cindy and I were in Israel in 2012 or 13, we, we had a tour guide who was a very, very knowledgeable person, and I asked him about the tomb of David. He kind of blew it off because oh, we don't know where it is. There, there's been a lot of debate whether that one in 1911 really was the tomb of David or not, but that's kind of insignificant. Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, talks about in his writings in Jerusalem in the first century during this time, the tomb of King David was well known. I've been a lot of things happened the last 2,000 years that could have destroyed that or, or covered it up. So whether we can find it or not today doesn't matter. It was there. Here's the point is Peter says David's talking about Jesus. David is buried over here. His body has decayed. He is in Hades, the place of the dead. His body has rotted. Jesus walked out of the tomb. And, and David foresaw that. His body didn't see corruption. He died, but he is in heaven. He didn't stay in the place of the dead. And his body didn't see decay. Old, Old Testament prophecy confirms Jesus is the Messiah. And some of you are going, well, that's good. To a Jewish person, that was gigantic. And if you're trying to build an argument to a skeptic, that's a very important thing. Let me give you a fourth thing it says here. The Holy Spirit has universally come. The Holy Spirit came to all in Christ. We saw that in Acts chapter 2, the first couple of verses. Remember, kind of complicated, but in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell everyone. The Holy Spirit indwelled people, uh, certain people or empowered people from time to time. 
Joel chapter 2 said in the last days, last days are the times from Jesus till now, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. That's exactly what we saw happen uh, in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Look in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this as you yourselves are seeing and hearing. One of these people came rushing up. And they hear people speaking and declaring the wonders of God in their own native tongues. People who are speaking in, let's say, Mandarin Chinese who don't know Mandarin Chinese. And, and Peter's saying, this is verification. The last days, the Holy Spirit's being poured out on people. And you're seeing that and hearing that, that Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Lord. And then he gives one other verification fact. He says, this Jesus is at the right hand of the Father today. Let's look at that last point, guys. Jesus is at the, uh, the, sits at the right hand of the Father today. Right hand of the Father today. Wow. Verse 33 through 35. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a quote here from the 110th Psalm, verse 1. A Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. One Bible scholar said that is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. That's interesting, isn't it? It, 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 I haven't done the homework on that to verify that, but but I imagine that guy was at least right. It's probably one of the most quoted. What does it mean to sit at the right hand of, of the king? In the Eastern culture, the right hand of the king was the, was the most important seat. That was the place of honor. That was the place of power. You had the ear of the king. That's where you wanted to be. Remember Peter and, and, and John? <laughs> now, James and John, the two brothers, they wanted to sit at the right hand and left hand when they got to heaven. A uh, little bit arrogant and, and self-promoting. You talk about someone being your right-hand man today or your right-hand woman, that's a compliment, man. That's your best friend. That's your helper. That's the person that makes a difference in your life. Can you imagine these devout, some snooty Jewish people hearing this uneducated Peter saying, hey, this Jesus who is from Nazareth, remember one of Jesus' own disciples said, does anything good ever come from Nazareth? He's from Galilee, which is the lesser of the two places in, uh, in Israel from here's Galilee, here's Judea. He sits at the right hand of the Father today. That's blasphemy if it's not true. If it's true, Jesus is the Christ and he is the Lord. And I want to end by telling you this. Jesus is the Christ and he is the Lord. Isn't that exciting? Look again in verse 36 one more time. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Wow. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior. He is Lord. He is Master. He is the owner of everything. He is God. And the last part of this verse ought to disturb us really bad. This Jesus whom you have crucified. Can you imagine how they felt? We're going to see when we pick this up in a few weeks how they respond, and they respond very well. It says in verse 37, they were cut to the heart because they'd just been told 
that by their sin and by their backing and their pushing, they had led to the Son of God, the Messiah, God in the flesh, being crucified. I want to tell you something that's a lot more personal. You're a reason Jesus got crucified. And I am too. Do you know that? When's the last time you thought about that? That the Messiah, that the Savior, that the Son of God, that the Lord in the flesh died on the cross. And he died because of your sin and my sin. God was able to look thousands of years in the future and say, you know, I know what they're going to do. They need a Savior. No saying about it was your hand or my hand that helped drive the nail into Jesus' hand. That's true. So I want to ask you tonight, if you're a Christian, how are you doing with this? Man, when we stand in a moment, let's don't go through the routine. Let's do business with God. Maybe where you're standing or at the altar, Christian, maybe you just need to praise the Lord and thank God for for dying for you and walking out of that tomb and everything that means. Maybe you need to thank him that he took your place and died for your sins. Maybe some of us need to repent. I mean, we we live so half-heartedly for Christ. Christian, man, let's do business with God tonight. Maybe you're here and you'd like to join our church. You know, one of the the analogies of the church is it is the body of Christ, the body of the Messiah, the Savior of of God. Wow. We'd love for you to join us tonight. You can do it when we stand or you can do it after church. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You're unsure if you're a Christian. Jesus Christ is the one you need the one who died for you and loves you, you come and give your life to him tonight. Let's stand. And as we sing, you come. We'll be waiting on you.